Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Show podcast today on the pod. Why are rule-breaking Airbnbs still operating in Vancouver? Is it time to tax non-compliant rental platforms? And from a damning integrity commission's report to open warfare with the park board, what's going on at Vancouver City Hall? And mere weeks after the federal government announced an international student visa cap, why are some BC organizations crying foul? Plus, what is the ick in relationships and how can you overcome it? That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. But let's talk about another uh, important issue that is uh, municipal and and, uh, provincial as well. And that, of course, is housing, specifically short-term rentals like Airbnb. Now, we learned recently there are still about 120 or so Airbnb still running in Vancouver that are not following the rules. Many Airbnb operators are still listing their properties, even though they have an expired business license. And despite requests from the city to remove um, and shut down those respective businesses. In fact, City Council Lenny Zhao uh, has been demanding greater compliance from short-term rentals. Now there are many places, many now many blame. Sorry, uh, Airbnb's ravenous appetite for residential units for exacerbating the housing crisis. What to do with Airbnb in this specific situation as well? Joining me now to discuss the issue is Tom Davidoff, director of UBC's Center for Urban Economics and Real Estate. Tom, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about the specific issue. We spent a lot of time talking about Airbnb last year. Uh, there was hope that uh, Airbnb would cooperate with the city. Uh, Lenny Zhao said there's about 120 or so, 20 or so of these Airbnbs still running in Vancouver, even though their licenses have been rescinded. How do you deal with these people in your mind? Right. Well, the most important thing, I think, is that we already have the speculation and empty homes taxes. So, you know, the big issue here is we want real estate in Vancouver primarily to be used uh, to house people who live and work here or have retired here. You know, it's a great place to vacation and, you know, it's nice to have a tourism industry, but first priority uh, housing for residents. So we've got the empty homes tax and the speculation tax, which say, should say if you're doing full-time Airbnb, you don't have a regular tenant, you got to pay a tax and a pretty significant one. And so that should work. You know, the province is now double bagging and saying you're just plain not allowed uh, to do short-term rental unless it is your primary residence or a um, auxiliary unit in your primary residence. You can go farther and tax short-term rental, which I think would would be a smart thing to do. Uh, And uh, then you can make sure, you know, and push Airbnb to be compliant with the bans and regulations. As I've mentioned elsewhere, a challenge uh, with putting the compliance on the short-term rental operators themselves is their incentive is to do kind of a lousy job because they get paid for transactions, not for policing. Mm-hmm. So, but and so in this case, is it also a case that the city should just clamp down, send in um, employees, and have the have these uh, units shut down? Beyond the broader question, I think that you've addressed here, but in regards to these specific one twenty, just get in there, bylaw officers, and shut it down. You know, possibly. I will say, if the real number is one hundred twenty, then I would say hats off to the city and province for having taken care of things with the speculation and empty homes tax because, you know, Airbnb uh, pays so much more uh, in a month than a paying tenant, probably even including, you know, the the damages from, you know, unfortunate users. But uh, so 120 is really not a huge number considering what a strong financial incentive there is to do this. So if the real number is 120, I would just say take a bow, keep doing what you're doing. Uh, is there any positive for Airbnb, uh, for short-term rentals? I'm just trying. You've made a very good point here in regards to the city should be for its residents before you worry about tourism. Is there any positive, net positive, in regards to these short-term rentals? Absolutely. Now, if they're used as you know, when you go on vacation. You know, I've got three cats, one of whom is special needs. So when and if I ever leave uh, town, uh, you know, which I don't love to do, uh, pretty tough for me to rent the place out. But, you know, if if I'd like to vacation more, didn't have cats and really needed to finance my vacation, uh, the ability for me to use my primary residence to earn income while I'm away, that's great, A, for me, but it's also good for the economy, good to encourage tourism, right? We know when Taylor Swift comes to town, it's going to be really hard for uh, people to find a place. So when we have surges in travel, it's very good to find a way to accommodate people who want to come here and, you know, having a kitchen and all that 
very attractive for families on vacation. Mm-hmm. Now, there have been some, uh, there's been exe- uh, exe- exceptions to the Airbnb legislature, and including Whistler and the Gulf Islands. Other communities like Parksville have also raised concerns. Do you think it needs to stay the way, the way it is in regards to some exceptions if, if they're resort communities, but broadly it should be across the board with it being your primary residence for this to work? You know, uh, as I say, there's a bit of a a tension. I sort of think the empty homes tax and speculation tax should be enough, and and a limitation on short-term rentals per se is sort of double bagging. Mm -hmm. And my second favorite would probably be a tax. You know, you can a high enough tax is the same thing as a ban. And you know, look, if people want to pay enough money for the right to Airbnb, there's there's a price where they are happy, possibly, and the city makes more money than they lose. Uh, in lost housing units. But, you know, the, the, the blanket ban on non-primary residents, given the severity of the housing crisis, uh, I don't think it's a crazy judgment to do that either, up to, as you mentioned, these resort areas that, you know, obviously thrive on tourism and you don't want to shut it down. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think Airbnb and short-term rental companies in general are exacerbating the problem in regards to the housing crisis? Well, first of all, I wouldn't blame the you know anybody for taking advantage of financial uh, incentives. There's there's a tremendous demand for Airbnb. I, I don't fault them for providing that service. But yeah, look, I mean, British Columbia and particularly Greater Vancouver is a really nice place to have money, and that means it can be a challenging place to make money, right? So uh, we are always going to be challenged by demand for rich people from all over the place really wanting to spend a lot of time here and absorbing up the housing stock, making things tough uh, for people who just uh, work ordinary jobs here and, and, and have really hard time paying. So putting a thumb on the scale for the workforce, both politically and, and, and maybe rationally, uh, the right way to go. You raised the issue and been talking about the speculation tax and the, and the empty homes tax. Um, you comment a lot on this issue. You know this issue really well. You're an expert. What impact do you think, if any, Uh, the flipping tax will have. I'm very curious your thoughts on this. Yeah, the flipping tax, I was just sort of looking at, you know, Jens von Bergman has put out some numbers. Uh, The the BC Realtors have put out some numbers. My best guess is you have something like 2% of all homes every year get flipped. Something like 1% to 2% of all all homes get flipped. Mm -hmm. This tax will probably apply to something like half of those flips because, you know, divorces, deaths, people who add basement suites are, are, are some part of the flips. Mm-hmm. So maybe you're looking at 1% of the housing stock every year subject to a tax, you know. So maybe you're adding a half percent to the stock, you know, of homes that are available for people, something like that. I, you know, that, that doesn't hurt, but I, I don't think you're buying yourself affordability. I think you, we'd be deceiving ourselves to say, that's it. Okay, that's <laughs> the magic uh, button, and uh, now we're all good for affordability. And one final, uh, the the other issue has been BC Builds. I just, uh, I've had uh, the housing minister on the show. Uh, the prime minister was on the show uh, yesterday uh, promising another $2 billion, uh, even though the program was only a week old. He's encouraging other uh, provinces to introduce similar type of legislation. What do you think of the BC Builds program? I, I can't see that on its own, obviously, having a massive impact, but do you think it helps? Yeah, I think my understanding of the program is that it facilitates uh, turning publicly or socially, you know, nonprofit owned land and turning it into rental housing. That's great. You know, I think they're trying to get approvals faster, getting municipalities to commit to to speeding uh, approvals up for this, and they make public financing available to create rental housing. That's fantastic. Some of the units uh, are going to wind up being below market. That that that's fine. That's a way to help people who can't pay market rents. So I certainly don't see that harming affordability, and it's a way to accelerate getting land into use as housing, which is terrific. Is it, again, you know, does that mean, okay, mission accomplished? Absolutely not, but it's a necessary step on the way. Tom, as always, thank you for your time. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Everything he do get me up. All they listen to is our top 10 hits. Liking pasta al dente. Wearing a t-shirt with no pants on. They suggest bowling or mini golf as a first date. Vaping. Double offense if you wear your vape around your neck like a Tamagotchi. If he posts anything, reposts anything Wolf of Wall Street related, donezo. What you're listening to there are examples of the ick. Now, it's a dating term that means you get a sudden cringe feeling 
when you have a romantic contact with someone and become almost immediately put off by them. And before you think, well, Jazz is an expert on this. No, I'm not. I had to Google that, folks. Joining me now is Jerry Mayer Jetson uh, to explain the ick the to us. Ick. This is an online phenomenon? This is an online phenomenon, but it dates back to, I would say, the early aughts or the 90s. I forget when exactly Ali McBeal uh, was... The TV show. Yeah, the TV show. It, oh, wow. That's the first recorded use of the ick, but it's more of an online phenomenon. And I kind of had this idea around Valentine's Day, mm-hmm. I was like, sure, we talk about love and everything, but what about the ick? And I feel like I gotta, I gotta explain, mm-hmm. but uh, there's someone more qualified than I. I talked to Demona Hoffman. She is an author and certified dating coach and her new book, F the Fairy Tale: Rewrite the Dating Myths and Live Your Own Love Story just came out this year. So she's literally, Jazz, written the book on how effed dating can be. Oh. And uh, so I couldn't have found a better person to explain the ick to us. The ick is this undeniable feeling that you sometimes get when you are dating someone and something happens. It's usually sort of indescribable or it's one thing that occurs that just makes them immediately and irrevocably repulsive to you. That's the ick. That's the ick. And it's not even something that you would equate to someone being a bad person. It could just be the way that someone ties their shoes or something like that, right? Oh, it could be the way they eat, the way they tie their shoes, the way they breathe. It could just be a memory, a a hint of something that you get from thinking about something they did a week ago that just makes you totally turned off and unable to date them anymore. Why do you think we might experience the ick. Well, I like to encourage daters to use all their senses with dating. So sometimes it is a remnant of something from our past that comes back to hit us on an emotional level. For example, I was saying even just the way someone smells, our sense of smell is the most tied to memory. So it could be just a scent that triggers something from our past, or it could just be an annoyance that we recognize from someone we've dated before or someone from our family history. But a lot of times it's not the actual act or the the actual feeling in the moment. It's usually tied to something deeper. Okay. So it's very much not The simple fact that they brush their teeth in an odd way could just be, oh, this might remind me of something that I really didn't like that someone else did. It has to be more than that, because otherwise, as you said earlier, it would just be a a red flag or a beige flag or a pink flag or whatever color flags (laughs) are flying around right now. It would just be something where you know, in that beginning phase of dating, you're sort of making a checklist and you're like, okay, this person said this thing and I kind of put that in the con category but there's so much else in the pro that I can forgive this but if you have that immediate response to someone that is just just so visceral that you can't get over it it has to be tied to something deeper do you think that this phenomenon now that we kind of courtesy of the internet have a name for this feeling, for this phenomenon. Do you think it's changed the dating landscape for daters at all? Like, do you think that now that we have this, it's a, you're more permitted to kind of step out when you, when you experience this feeling? I don't think that the, the ick is changing dating so much as I, I think dating is, is impacted because of so many other factors, like just the availability of dating apps, the popularity of dating apps and how many options are at our fingertips, it does become really easy to just swipe on to the next. And so I think that the ick was always there. I actually heard that the ick originated on Ally McBeal. So, you know, it's been around 20 years ago. So it's been around. But yes, as you said, the Internet brought it back. But Online dating, texting, everything going down in the DMs make the ick that much more accessible to us because we can have the ick, take an immediate action and already be on to the next today. Are you perhaps willing to tell me something that has given you the ick in a a partner in the past, maybe? 
Uh, I, I can. So I was dating this guy and I I kind of already had a low grade ick, but it wasn't it didn't rise to the level of the ick. And he came to pick me up and he was in a yellow Jeep, you know, the kind of Jeep with the not the hard top with the soft top and the flap. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Jerry, it was bright yellow. <laughs> and I saw I just saw him in that car and I was just like, what are you trying to prove? Who do you think you are? Why would you choose that like bright look at me kind of yellow? Ick, I can't. I just can't. And that was Immediately that, no. literally it. That was the last. <laughs> the yellow Jeep. So I guess that was it. That was it. I mean, it's, that was it. it. And it might have charmed someone else. But just for Timona, no. <laughs> Immediately, no. You know what's really, and I sound like an old guy, but what's really ruined dating is technology. Surely. <laughs> Yeah, it's the immediacy and the availability. And like she was saying, just you can just go, you know what? Yuck, on to the next. Like you cough like my dad when you brush your teeth. So on to the next, it's done. Or whatever it might happen. Or I hate the way you wind up for a sneeze or something. I'm not I'm not basing these on real life. Surely not. Um, not ex- I've ever experienced jazz, but you know. <laughs> or something like so she was cute. saying just something evocative that's well, like it nope next you mentioned uh, uh ali mcbeal where, where this was first used i would think seinfeld and once again i'm dating myself but that's a classic show mm-hmm. there was always jerry who was the permanent bachelor yes and he would always have girlfriends that there would something would occur that he would say okay i'm moving on so because he was, was man hands man hands oh my god man hands <laughs> <laughs> she had man hands. Man hands, Jerry. Yes, he was really, before we had the word the ick, uh, courtesy Valley Mobile, Seinfeld, he was the queen, the king of the ick. Exactly. There you go. Uh, give us a call on the buzz line. We'd love to hear from you if you have a story of an ick, and, and uh, maybe it's man hands. I don't know. Maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe your date coughed like your dad. <laughs> But do give us a call on the buzz. Like, this is something that turns you off. 604-331-2899. That's 604-331-2899. Or email us at jazz at cknw.com. Jerry, thank you. Thank you. I'm not even sure what to call uh, this next segment. Uh, I was thinking about that uh, this morning as we were discussing in our editorial meeting. And I think the the proper uh, title for this segment is What the Heck is Going On at City Hall? Uh, and where this comes from is I was just going through some of the challenges, some of the news stories that have come out of, of Vancouver City Hall recently. The City of Vancouver's Integrity Commissioner uh, found Mayor, Mayor Ken Sim discriminated against Park Board Commissioner Laura Christensen after she was left out of a critical meeting on the board's future. Uh, that made the news. And then, of course, we heard about Faye uh, Whitman, a very experienced board board member with the Vancouver Police Board, uh, uh, basically tendered her resignation on January 30th, saying that the apparent, uh, saying that apparent conflicts of interest and political interference made her unable to continue. Uh, that's a second bit of news there. Then, of course, we heard uh, about uh, the park board uh, being eliminated. Uh, and, of course, now you're having basically open warfare between the park board or members of the park board and Ken Sim. Uh, now, you also had uh, a counselor, uh, Mike Klassen, recently, seeking council approval to spend an estimated $3,600 on a trip to Halifax to attend Juno Awards uh, to get a better understanding of how that city runs the Juno Awards, even though we've run the Juno Awards and they've, they've been here in Vancouver before. Now, the councillor um, rescinded that request. Uh, it was supposed to be decided uh, tomorrow, uh, but that's not being done. So those are just some of the stories that have made the news. And I add to that that after nearly not even two years in power, almost two years in power, this is a fiscally conservative party. Certainly that's the way they've marketed themselves, the folks who know how to handle a budget, unlike those socialist hordes under Kennedy Stewart. There was a 10.7% property tax increase in its first year. Uh, this year's increase is going to be 7.6%. For the second year, that's well past 18.3% uh, in property tax increases. So what is going on at City Hall? Usually this is, uh, of course, the second year. Uh, you should be settling in, still uh, you know, have a halo over your head to a certain degree and get some of the, some of the big stuff done. Well, joining me now to talk a little bit about Vancouver City Hall and Ken Sims' leadership is Francis Bula, political contributor for the Globe and Mail. Francis, welcome. Hi, Jeff. <laughs> I feel like I hardly have anything to say. Except maybe you can call it Stepping on the rake hour. 
So I was just going through this, and I got to talk to Francis about this. So your thoughts? I mean, these these are just some of the things I've pointed to. Political watchers will get into greater intricacy on some of these. But in your opinion, what the heck is going on at Vancouver City Hall? Well, you know, like new parties do make mistakes. There's no doubt about that. Um, and uh, but some of them come in like with a little bit more. Uh, of an experienced team and others don't. Um, and there, there's a lot of rookie mistakes. But I remember when Sam Sullivan was mayor. Sorry, I'm, I'm betraying my ancientness here. But, <laughs> you know, they had a budget meeting that went till 5 in the morning. One of their own councillors voted against some of the things. They tried to cancel a bunch of advisory committees and everyone went crazy. Uh, you know, so new councils do make rookie mistakes and end up um, rolling things back. Um, but um, I think there's maybe two things going on. Mm-hmm. And one is that the mayor's office staff, it, it, there's been a lot of change, as, as you know, a lot of rotation. And um, Trevor Ford is the current uh, director of communications. Hi, Trevor. I know you always listen. I'm expecting your phone call after telling me what I said wrong. <laughs> uh, but, um, y- you know, you do get the sense that there's like kind of not a lot of bench strength. And someone suggested to me that's because a lot of the political strategists, they see Paul Yevra, uh winning uh, you know, nationally, federally, so people are all uh, working on, um, sorry about this, um, uh, they're all working on, you know, those kinds of campaigns. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you do get the sense that the people in the office are more used to running like a political campaign where it's just like get your opponent, you know, like undermine them. So that maybe explains some of the weird stuff that especially seems to have been directed towards women like Christine Boyle and Laura Christensen about, you know, complaints about their behavior or shutting them out or whatever. Um, So, uh, you know, there's not a lot of people who've actually uh, run government, you know, being part of government and run it, uh, it, because it's different. It's different from a political campaign and it's different from a business. Like there's a different kind of uh, interaction that you have with the voters, with the citizens, and uh, it's like they haven't quite grasped uh, that one. Not that I think they're doing completely terribly. Like, quite frankly, sorry, am I going on too no, long? No, you want to no, no, go something? ahead. I want you to finish. <laughs> I want you to finish. Um, I went to the Vancouver magazine. Um, sorry about this. No, uh, that's probably Trevor Ford calling you. <laughs> but let me, I'll, let you finish your, I'll let you finish your thought. Um, I, I went to the Vancouver Magazine Power 50 Awards, and the mayor was there. And, you know, aside from a joke about, oh, so glad you dressed up for us as he showed up in hoodie and runners once again. But, uh, you know, a lot of people were complimentary, either on the stage or, you know, uh, when they were mingling in the audience saying, you know, you've brought common sense back to the city. There's definitely a sense I got that, you know, there's a certain power group that really connects with him, thinks that he's doing good things, uh, and and so on. So, you know, we have to be wary that we don't fall into the Twitter mob mentality way of... and I I don't disagree with you on that because I know they go to a lot of community events and sometimes that's more important than being in media media interviews when you can be at a variety of community events and community organizations that you you build a relationship with. That I understand. But for a fiscally conservative government that's going to handle money properly, and I don't blame them fully for this, but you're looking at very significant, two very significant property tax increases... That can't be something your supporters want. Number one, your your second issue, uh, I believe, is is this park board mess. I'm not, and no one's going to come to the rescue of politicians wanting to save an institution. Uh, but I don't, I, you know, it's not exactly a, a, an example of how to handle or no, manage they a situation. They didn't do it in a good way. Like they're sort of running things as though it's running with scissors is what they're doing, or uh, or a political campaign. And it's different when you're in government and you're the one in charge and everybody's watching what you do. Like they could have with the park board. You know, I know a lot of people on the left who think the park board is really difficult. And the, even the First Nations who aren't necessarily signing on to support it, um, they're not saying they want to save the park board. That they, Their interests lie elsewhere. 
Um, so, you know, if there had even been a little bit of a conversation or something to say, look at, we tried this for a year, we feel like uh, we're still stuck with the same problems, there's something structurally wrong, um, let's have a conversation about what to do. But it was just like cooked up, um, I don't even know how or, or when, and announced, um, you know, somewhat to the surprise of quite a few people, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when when people are voting in another two two years and a bit, uh, you know, one could argue Ken Sims going to say, "Look, I promised you a hundred police officers; that'll probably be done. I promised you promised you a hundred mental health nurses; that'll be done." Done. He can say, "Look, you got the train in Stanley Park," although you know there's still the, the bike lane issue and all that sort of thing. But it, what else do you think he can point to? What is he going to say? What is the selling point next time? That's common sense government. I mean, I'm trying to understand on election day, what's yeah, the ballot question? I know because I mean, he, you can't really campaign on. I got rid of the Vancouver Economic Commission because like 99 percent of voters are going to be like, "What's that?" Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, the province is really emphasizing housing, and uh, that is what people care about more than anything else. And I also think there's a bit of disgruntlement that's starting to really percolate over as they see how the Broadway plan, as people see how the Broadway plan is going to, you know, work out. So they need to be out talking strongly about housing and what they're doing in that area, Um, not just going to uh, Mr. Trudeau's or Mr. Eby's, you know, press conferences and saying you're doing a great job and we really appreciate it. Um, you, you know, that is a really big issue and a really clear message on, okay, yeah, we had two years of brutal tax increases, by the way, so did pretty much every city across Canada. Like even West Bend's taxes are up 8%. You can imagine what's happening over there. Mm-hmm. Um, but just a, a really clear focus on what people were the most concerned about. Like, because they're, they're, they're kind of being nibbled away at with all these little things, park board, economic commission, police board, uh, you know, um, integrity commissioner decisions, you know, um, stepping on the rake over whether you should send a third person from the city, a city councillor all the way to Halifax, you know, to look at the Juno Awards. Um, you, you know, they're, they're getting caught up in too many little rookie things and, they really need to focus on a main message, uh, which is here's the progress we're making on the housing file. This is what we're doing. Um, here's, you know, that kind of thing. And and maybe a little bit less of the snippy, you know, filing complaints about Christine Boyle or shutting out pregnant women from meetings. <laughs> <laughs> That's a start. And one could argue, uh, is the left or his opponents, are they coalescing around one candidate? Are they working towards an effective yeah, opposition? they're not. They're not there they're not. And there's yeah. a lot of rumors that, you know, one of the candidates might be opting for a provincial seat. And, you know, there's just no sense of a coherent opposition. So maybe they feel like, it doesn't matter because, um, you know, we're, we're going to win anyway and we'll lose a little bit of support, but we're going to win anyway given the level of disorganization, you know, and just kind of nothingness uh, on the opposition side. So, but, I mean, I think just for the sake of the city, it's nice to feel good about the city, like that something is happening that's positive and you need to keep emitting messages like that. And it can't be, oh, we suddenly decided to get rid of this thing. Oh, how do you feel about it? You've got a day to tell us. <laughs> there you go. Francis, thank you as always. Appreciate your time. Okay, that's great. Well, you may have heard recently in the news that the University of Victoria is planning budget cuts for the 2024-2025 school year, citing declining international student enrollment as the main reason. Uh, 4% of the university's operating budget, around $13 million, is uh, on the chopping block. This all comes after uh, the federal government announced in January that it was uh, there was a temporary cap on new international student visas. Uh, the visas that would be issued for International students will go down from 560,000 people uh, to 364,000 in 2024. Now, business leaders in uh, BC's capital say that the new cap on international student visas requires 
a serious rethink. Now, many people have said that the international student numbers that have grown so significantly are putting pressure on Canada's housing system. Uh, but uh, Greater Victoria's Chamber of Commerce CEO Bruce Williams say there has to be other ways to deal with the housing crisis that doesn't include a cap. Uh, Bruce Williams, as I said, is the CEO of the Greater Victoria Chamber of Commerce, and he joins us now. Bruce, thank you for joining us today. Good to be here, Jez. Thanks for the call. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, conversation around the issue of international students. Uh, many people uh, supported what the federal government uh, uh, did a few weeks ago in regards to putting a cap on the international student number. Your organization has some concerns about it. Uh, why is this such a big deal for the Greater Victoria Chamber of Commerce? Uh, well, it's the same as it's a good, uh, big deal, rather, for pretty much any chamber who is affiliated with a post-secondary community anywhere. Uh, this is going to be a huge impact on revenue for post-secondaries across the country. Um, international students are a major source of revenue. Uh, they pay full tuition, as you know, whereas domestic students don't. That means that domestic students have the ability to study at a greater rate because of the revenue provided by international students. So there's a whole long list of things about this. They, there was some indication that the, the move was made because of the, a number of housing units uh, that international students um, take up. Mm-hmm. The better solution for that is to build more on-campus housing, right? Because if you put them on campus housing, that also means that it frees up those units in the general population for workers because workers are having a difficult time finding a place to live, and that impacts the price of it all. But at the same time, when you look at the role of an international student as a potential worker in the future, as an educated and skilled worker, uh, we're not going to be replenishing our, our worker supply as people retire. So we need the skills that they're going to be acquiring from their post-secondary studies to keep our economy moving. But is the system uh, just structurally uh, in trouble when we have to rely on international students to subsidize the basic system, which should be, at its core, educating young people in British Columbia first and foremost? Uh, well, I think the international students enrich our culture, frankly. I think that what they bring from their homeland to us really helps us educate ourselves on who they are and what they do. Uh, and the, the diversity within our culture is very important to make us a world-class city or municipality or whatever it might be. Um, it's always been that way. International students have always been a factor in this. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, it's just it's something that it, the system itself is flawed, Jazz. It really needs to have an overhaul. Uh, there's universities and colleges in Ontario, for example, that have massive numbers of international students simply because they see it as a source of revenue. That means that places like uh, UBC and Langara and UVic and Camosun College don't have access to those visas because they're all tied up at these other schools. There's one school in Ontario that through bringing in international students has created a reserve fund of $600 million. What do you think UVic or Camosun or BCIT could do with $600 million? Right, so they need to find a way to make the distribution of these visas more equitable. Is partially the problem, you, you, you brought up Camosun uh, on the island, the uh, University of Victoria. Part of the issue here is just private schools that, 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 that perhaps uh, have caused the bulk of these, the, these problems. Not all private schools, but some of them have just turned into diploma mills. Uh, in many cases, some kids' students not even showing up for class. It's just a way to get into Canada uh, as an immigrant, a different type of immigrant. Uh, and this is what caused these issues to the point now that we are hearing of UVic, of course, saying they're going to have to cut back on their budget and potential layoffs in other colleges as well. Yeah, yeah, that is a problem. As I say, there's kind of a systemic issue with this whole plan that needs to have an audit or a, a re-looking at it anyway, somehow, uh, because it's not working. It needs to be more equitable. It needs to be something that, like a lot, like you say, a lot of the private schools are, are not really turning out graduates that necessarily are of great value to our economy, yet they are tying up those international student visas which in some cases, again, as you said, are just a way to get them into Canada. So, so the focus in your mind should be building more student housing. You, Vic, I know uh, when I was in MLA, there was an announcement uh, for U- the University of Victoria uh, and its, uh, it ne- its needs for new housing, and, and it was built. Uh, y- your concern is more so at the college level, the Camosun Colleges, the Langaras, the Quantlands. Uh, that's where we should be focusing our energy on in regards to um, building student housing? No, I think all of them. There is one thing that, and I hope I'm going to explain this correctly, um, in the post-secondary world, universities are allowed to incur debt for things like building housing. Community colleges are not. Camosun College doesn't have one single student housing unit because they can't find the financial support to make it happen. So a re-examination of that would be a good idea if the province was to look at making it possible for uh, post-secondaries on the community college level to create housing because the cost recovery, and that's quite fast, it's immediate. Mm-hmm. And um, 
that's something that probably needs to be looked at. Do you think the, the schools, though, whether it's UVic or Camosun or any school here in British Columbia, you, do, you pointed out Ontario, and that's where I think the real challenges lie, although some schools here will be impacted in British Columbia with, with, the, with these caps, of course. Um, but these schools have also become just too reliant on the international student money that, look, UVic should still have enough of demand and probably an endowment not to have to cut, even though they are cutting 4%. But some of these other colleges as well, that we have enough of a demand locally here and perhaps not having to rely so much on international students. Well, I think if they'd been given more notice, it wouldn't be the situation. But this just kind of dropped out of the sky and everybody was surprised by it. And they, they haven't really heard the final decision on what it's going to look like. But if some, if some consultation would have been helpful, too, because there wasn't any. Mm-hmm. And uh, the feds just went ahead with this and, and made it happen. So it's not a great plan. And it's one that probably should have had more diligence put into it. Why is this a priority for... Uh, the Greater Victoria Chamber of Commerce. You've got lots of other issues, uh, like any uh, business organization. Why is this a priority for you? Uh, Because we hear about the workforce issues, the challenges that people have in finding uh, employees right now, uh, skilled and unskilled. Uh, These students also bring economic commerce. They bring money. They, They spend while they're here. And the creation of workforce is something that's a huge priority right now as people are either retiring or leaving this jurisdiction because of the cost of living. And they are going back to Alberta, back to Saskatchewan, or even back to their home country or something. But the creation of workforce is a big priority right now because the, the economy is not functioning at its highest capacity, and these students would be a part of that. If the University of Victoria has already said they're cutting back 4%, that's about $13 million, uh, do you see more uh, announcements like that uh, on island uh, institutions like Camosun, Vancouver Island University, uh, as such? North Island College. Um, I can't say for sure. Um, I would anticipate that happening, though. Uh, UVic were just the first ones out of the gate, but you have to think that that same circumstance will apply to all the post-secondaries across the province. Bruce, as always, thank you for your time. Appreciate it, Jeff. BC government uh, is increasing the minimum wage in our province to $17.40 an hour as of June 1st of this year. Uh, The province says the 3.9% increase uh, is consistent with BC's average rate of inflation in 2023. Uh, The minimum wage presently is uh, $16.75, as I said, a 3.9% increase. Joining me now to talk about the minimum wage is Harry Baines, BC's Minister of Labour. Minister Baines, thank you for joining us. Hey, Jeff, thank you for having me. Uh, this increase uh, is tied to the CPI index. Is this going to be indefinite now? Every year we're going to see these increases? Yes. Uh, what we did today is we introduced uh, amendments to the Employment Standard Act, uh, tying minimum wage increases in the future to the rate of inflation this year and, uh, and, and every year after this. So what it means is that the future increases will automatically uh, determined by the previous year's average inflation rate. And so I think the whole idea behind it, Jess, is to provide certainty and predictability for both workers and employers. And uh, also it is uh, you know, our commitment to make sure that a fair minimum wage is a key step uh, in our effort to make uh, life more affordable and provide certainty uh, to the businesses that they ask when we had a fair wages commission go around and and consulted with the businesses and workers at that time, and this will do that. Now, you had talked about this uh, when uh, the BCNDP was elected in 2017. What's taken so long in regards to just tying it to uh, the, the, the inflation rate? Well, I think uh, there were a couple of things. One, that Fair Wages Commission, I was waiting for their final report, uh, mm-hmm. because part of their um, um, mandate was to uh, you know, give us some suggestions what to do uh, with the discrepancy between minimum wage and living wage in BC. And uh, they made their final report and they said, well, the problems why measures are needed in order to uh, 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 you know, slow the gap or narrow the gap between minimum wage and, and uh, living wage. And, and, but as for our commitment that we made in 2017, we have been increasing minimum wage uh, uh, through the uh, through the uh, the actions of the cabinet mm-hmm. by the rate of inflation for the last two years, and now we are enshrining it into the law, so that uh, we take the politics out of this and ad hoc uh, ad hoc uh, uh, you know decision made by the government uh, uh, didn't provide you know certainty and predictability to to businesses and workers uh, both. 
Um, have you been hearing, I know you, you've, you've consulted, but there's always going to be many in the small business owners who say, wait a minute here. Uh, you know, uh, it doesn't mean revenue has gone up 3.9% uh, this year. Uh, and it is difficult for many of these uh, smaller businesses to deal with this built-in increase every single year. What do you say to those uh, employers who are saying, look, I can't afford this every single year, this, this, these increases? Yeah, no, first of all, I do acknowledge uh, that there are uh, continue to be challenges faced by our businesses, small business or large businesses right now uh, coming out of COVID. There are all kind of challenges. But I think I also say to them and everybody that um, the support to businesses, which government uh, is providing on a different front, but it should not come at the expense of the lowest paid workers in this, this province. Because they are, uh, they are the least able to absorb price increases from global inflation and uh, uh, continually are forced to make uh, uh, difficult decisions to make ends meet. Uh, but government is coming up with different proposals to help support businesses. For example, this budget 2024, we have, uh, you know, uh, raised the threshold, uh, uh, you know, uh, for them to pay employer health tax from 500 million to uh, uh, 500,000 to million dollars. And also, uh, you may recall, we also cut the uh, small business tax rate. Uh, it's the second lowest in the country right now. Uh, and I think a couple other challenges that the businesses faced is the uh, attracting and retaining workers. And I think a couple of other measures like reducing childcare uh, make uh, more people to enter the workplaces. Uh, we have made significant in investment in skills training. So I think all of them put together, there's support available to the businesses. But uh, like I said, this is to support the lowest paid workers in this province who are least able to uh, absorb the price increases, uh, you know, uh, on, on in an inflationary side. Uh, are there, is there any other jurisdiction that's tying uh, minimum wage increases to CPI in, in this yes, country? There are, but eight other jurisdictions in Canada, uh, they have one way or the other tied tie their increases to, to, to uh, the, uh, the consumer price, price index. Some require cabinet to uh, follow the CPI, others are tied to the CPI. So um, I think most of them have some link to the CPI. Mm. Uh, you've, last time you were on the show, we were talking about uh, delivery drivers, so let's say for Uber Eats and many other uh, companies and, and, and you know for for drivers like that, the, the you know the wages can be a little different, be based on demand, and it's a different type of uh, job. Some of them call them it's the gig economy. Uh, can you just give me an update on where you are in regards to that broader conversation to make sure uh, you know they're paid a living wage? Of course, um, you know you know uh, yes, uh, Uber and others came to BC. I think. Um, you know, just a little over three years ago, uh, whereas in Toronto, our neighbors, Washington, say Seattle, they've been there over 15 years. And um, so since that time, we put together a consultation process so that we talk to the workers, talk to the app-based companies and experts in the field uh, to see what the problems are and then what the possible solutions are. And uh, I think that one thing that that came very clearly was that the workers and app-based companies agree on one thing, that flexibility was the key uh, for the drivers to you know, log on whenever they want, whenever they, they could come off and, and work when they wish to work or, or, or not. And so we need to keep that in mind. And then the other part was transparency, how they are paid and uh, what their trip transparency is, uh, where the trip will take them, what the wages would be. And also, uh, there was no coverage uh, if they are injured at work, which is a work-related injury uh, through the WCB. Mm-hmm. And the minimum wage, which uh, I believe every worker, regardless of their you know immigration status or what se- sector they work in, uh, they must in, you know are, they must be must enjoy the minimum standard protection as all workers do. So we heard all that. Now, then, as a result of that, we we passed legislation um, at last fall. And uh, now we are developing regulations mm-hmm. uh, uh, around that uh, the legislation, which will give them uh, expenses for the car that they drive, which will give them transparency uh, about wages uh, and the trips, and also WCB coverage. And 120% uh, is the uh, area that uh, 
engage time that they must be guaranteed. So all those areas are being developed right now. We have just finished consultation on that as well. And I think um, by this spring, we should have all those in. And then we will give some time for the the app-based companies to uh, adjust their technology. I mean, they are a technology company, but uh, they still need some time to make changes uh, in their system so that their payroll system uh, is brought up. And uh, then then I think these workers will enjoy these uh, uh, the basic minimum standards, at least. Here so, in BC. So, BC will be the first province to do that, uh, as you know. So would that be the fall then of this year? A good chance it'll be ready to go by then? With, with We're the- still talking. Yeah. We're still talking to, uh, well, the reg- reg- regulation should be ready by this spring. And then uh, we are still talking to them, uh, you know, understanding what and how long they, they need in order to uh, change their technology to, to make their payroll according to the changes that we are recommending. So that work is still going on. Minister, as always, thank you for your time. Yes, thank you for having me. Businesses on Granville Island got together today telling the City of Vancouver and specifically Vancouver City Council uh, the urgent need for fencing on the Granville Street Bridge to deter suicides and also uh, to deter vandals who throw things off the structure. Joining me now to talk about the issue is Tom Lancaster, the General Manager at Granville Island. Tom, thank you for joining us today. Hi, Jazz. Thanks for having me. How long has this been a problem? Well, I've only been here for about three and a half years as a GM. I, from what I can tell by the security reports, it's been going on for a long, long time, well over a decade. Mm-hmm. And what kind of things are people throwing uh, overboard? Depends on the day, depends on the time, uh, depends on what they can find. A lot of the time, it's usually kind of after the bars have closed, you know, between three and five in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, this particular case was uh, because the city's doing a lot of work on the, the top of the bridge, the bridge deck. There is a bunch of things from the bridge deck that got chucked down related to the construction that's going on there. Mm-hmm. And, and, and has it caused extensive damage uh, on Granville Island? Over the years, absolutely. There's, uh, you know, the kids' market is just on the east side of the bridge. It's had uh, its roof smashed. It's had the awning smashed. There's, there's numerous places on the island where this has happened. And it ranges from the Arts Club on the north side all the way down the bridge, kind of ending near like Vancouver Fishco, actually. Oh, wow. So in this case, the desire is for council to get on with installing high fencing then? Well, I, I have a, a, like a very good working relationship with the city of Vancouver, and the mayor and council are entirely supportive of Granville Island. We, we really appreciate that. We, we love it when councillors come down here and we get to meet with them and walk them around. And I've been working with this, this mayor and council who have a very strong mandate for public safety on the bridge, specifically to do with what's called means prevention fencing, kind of like what you see at the, the Burrard Street Bridge. Mm-hmm. We've, been, we've been looking at this now for the better part of, like, you know, what well, this council now since they joined, and before that, the, the prior council. And individual councillors are, are incredibly supportive of this, and the question is just around reallocation of budget. Mm-hmm. And is there any sense of what the budget would be like in, when you say, you know, uh, installing high fencing on both sides of the bridge? Uh, it is also, first of all, to deal with uh, any future vandalism, but also, you know, in many cases to deter suicides as well. Uh, any sense of how much m- money we're talking about here? Well, if you look back at uh, the budget for the Granville Bridge Improvement Project mm-hmm. uh, from like many years ago, you're talking about four or five years ago, everything's gone up so much since then. But it, it could be a, quite uh, a, like a, a modest amount, somewhere between five, six million, all the way up to maybe 20. But, you know, that being said, I, I have not been part of costing this out. It's not been designed. So there's some work to do to figure out exactly how much it would be. So at the end of the day right now, it's, it's about really finding the dollars because the, the challenge is, a, first of all, on people's uh, that, that, that uh, you know, many have said that when people do consider suicides, it's, a, it's pretty much impromptu, especially when it's near bridges. So you want to deter that, of course. And then, of course, the, the vandalism that you and I are talking about. I mean, this is, would be a priority, I'm guessing, for City Hall. So this is this is a really a difficult matter to talk about. It, it is near and dear to my heart, and you know, and a trigger warning for all of your listeners. But we work with the Crisis Center of BC, and Stacy Ashton, the executive director there, uh, mm-hmm. was signatory to a letter we sent today. And they will tell you from all the research that's out there that if you can stop a person who's in the midst of a mental health crisis or having uh, an issue with addictions in that moment 
if you can prevent them from taking dramatic action like uh, on a bridge, you've saved that person's life and then they can seek health, help and services later on. And so that, that's the intent. Is to pre- that's why it's called means prevention uh, fencing is to stop it in the moment mm-hmm. and to uh, give that person a chance to seek resources. And the fencing is uh, was installed uh, about ten years ago, maybe maybe less than ten years, about eight years ago, uh, on on Broad Street Bridge, uh, I, I believe. Yep, and and the intent was city council's intent and the uh, the intent of staff was to move forward with uh, doing uh, Granville Bridge as well. Uh, Dr. Mark Lashishan, who is uh, with Vancouver Coastal Health, has petitioned the city in the past for this. I think everybody recognizes that it, it needs to be done. It really is just a question of allocation of budget. And because this, the bridge is the city's responsibility, this, this lies squarely on their shoulders. But you're, you're looking at a time when uh, finances, both capital and operating at the municipal level, are so constrained. So my heart does go out to the city in having to make these difficult budget decisions, but you, this isn't a matter of if we're going to do it. It's just, it's got to get done at some point. Yeah, it's a question of when. Uh, just uh, uh, just stepping away from this situation just for a moment, how's Granville Island doing? <laughs> Thanks for asking. Um, well, it's a great question because, you know, we suffered heavily from 2020, 2021. We started to come out in 2022. And in 2023, we saw like what I would consider almost a complete recovery. Mm-hmm. In fact, the number of visitors is up over what it was in 2019 before COVID. Um, locals really came back to Granville Island during the last three years, which I thought was an amazing testament to what Granville Island means to people. We're, you know, we've, we've brought Ballet BC onto the island. Alimentaria has opened up. Bridges Tap and Barrel has opened up. There's an entire new kind of food scene that's emerged on the island. We're opening up seven new food and beverage businesses in the next year. You might have seen some of the construction on the island. Mm-hmm. So, Sorry, you know, did you say seven? Did you say seven? Yeah, wow. yeah I did. Yeah. That is great. That's great. Yeah, we're pretty excited. And, you know, and, and we reallocated uh, a couple of million dollars from um, some big events we were doing, and now we're doing tons of smaller events. So we saw over 110 events on Gravel Island in 2023, and we're hoping to do more this year. That is great news. Tom, thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.